Okay, hello everyone. Hello, welcome, welcome. So for those of you who are new, welcome to Restore Church. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, my name is John Glandon. And uh, I'm a member here at Restore Church. I've been a member since 2012. And I'm currently the evangelism influence leader as well, which uh, means that I help to inculcate a spirit of evangelism within everybody in the body uh, to go and reach their neighbors for the sake of Christ. Uh, but today's text I'm actually going to be preaching on is on faithfulness. And so really excited about this text, particularly after, uh, after Christmas. They're able to celebrate the birth of our Savior together. Uh, the, the passage that I, I constantly remind myself of throughout the year is in Luke 2.20, or I'm sorry, Luke 2.10, uh, which says that the angel uh, said, I come to bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, uh, which is born unto you this day is a Savior, Christ the Lord. Um, and so after Christmas, after celebrating with you guys, now looking at the new year, many of us are looking at the new year with resolutions, with trying to make the new year... Uh, in 2022 better than, than the last year. Uh, for those of us in Christ, we always look forward to the future with hope because we have a hope that endures, uh, namely uh, a hope that, that never fails being with Christ forever and living in God's glory forever. Uh, but, but as we go through this life in the flesh, we do have trouble. And so we look for, okay, well, how do we, how do we make our lives and the lives around us better? And so what I would propose to you, church, is that this year, in 2022, that our resolution would be to be more faithful. Be more faithful. And so I get this from 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 8, which says, Rather, train yourselves for godliness, for while bodily, value, for while bodily training is of some value, training godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. So you compare that with the normal self-improvement resolutions. Those have some merit. They have some value. But this one is training in, in godliness. So a definition of godliness uh, is the, the reverent awareness of God's sovereignty over every aspect of life and the attendant determination to honor him in all one's conduct. Uh, so another way to think of this is faithfulness to God and what he has commanded us. So that's where I get, let's be more faithful. Uh, the resolution is not only better and more enduring than the typical American resolutions, it's of a much different sort because it requires us to look to God, not to ourselves. It requires us to know his commands rather than seek our own path. And it requires that we act out in faith. And so when I say let's be more faithful, what do I mean by that? Well, let's start with the definition of faith. So we know uh, the definition of faith from Hebrews 11.1 1 is... Uh, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. So I was talking about this expectation, this hope that we have that endures. Now, the, the Greek root for, uh, for faith is, is to persuade or be persuaded. So, so when you're talking about faith in God and faith in his promises, we can think of this as a, as a divine uh, persuasion. We are persuaded by what God has told us, even when we can't see it. Um, a, a couple other uh, qualifications here about faith that we see in Scripture. Everything that does not proceed from faith is sin. We see that in Romans 14, 23. And without faith, it is impossible to please God, Hebrews eleven six. So you see that, that faith is, is an essential component here in being faithful. Uh, now let's get into to what faithful means. Think of this as, as a fullness of faith, a loyalty to faith, trustworthiness. Uh, so as we get in, into the, the, the text today, we're looking at uh, the relationship between a master and a servant. So you can think of this as a sort of business transaction where one shows oneself faithful in the transaction of business, the execution of commands, uh, the discharge of official duties. And so we're faithful to God when we are loyally doing what he requires of us. All right, now let's get into our text. It's, it's Luke 12, 35 through 48. I won't reread it because uh, we, we read it earlier, but I will go through different sections and zero in on different points. So um, it, just to put it into context, what's happening in this passage. And so the, the key verse that I'm going to center on first is verse 40. 
And so as we understand this verse, we see Christ's application to us from, from the parable of the master and the servants. And so, uh, so what he says is, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So if we understand this, we're going to understand the parable a lot better. So what does Jesus mean when he says you, as in you must be ready? What does he mean? Who's the you? And so Peter, in the next verse, actually asked Jesus what he meant. Is that, are you applying this parable to us, namely the disciples, or for everybody? And so as you read that text, Jesus doesn't directly answer him in Luke. But uh, you, can, you can see from the context, and I'll break this down further of the servants, that it does apply to everybody. But we can be certain of that because there's a parallel passage in Mark 12, uh, or Mark 13, rather, 35 through 37, uh, that, that does explain that it is for everybody. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So there we go. We, we have the context that he's applying it to everyone. Okay, so we know that he's applying this, this verse to everyone. So then who is the son of man that he's talking about? So you must also be, be ready uh, for the Son of Man will come in an hour you do not expect. So who's the Son of Man? Well, this is Jesus referring to himself. There's, uh, as I, I researched this, there were 88 instances of this happening in the New Testament. The phrase used, Son of Man, each one applies to Jesus. Uh, and he often, in the, in the vast majority of those cases, he used that, that title for himself. And this uh, this title denotes his humanity, son of man, his power, authority, and his humility. And so I'm going to zero in on the power and authority here because, because he's putting himself as in the context of the master. And so this, this shows that authority that he has over his servants. And so the, the passage that really helps us understand his authority is in Daniel, uh, verse, er, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. It's on the screen as well, so you can read along with me. Um, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. There it is, one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, which was another way of, of uh, seeing God and, and knowing God. He came to before the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so Jesus uses this, this term for himself. And so now you get a sense of why the Pharisees were so upset about Jesus. He's declaring himself as this, as this son of man. And so often he gets resistance from the Pharisees. He calls them out a lot, but he's also declaring himself these very explicit divine terms that encompass deep and enduring authority and dominion. And so even the, the, this term, I suspect, was, was fairly offensive to some in that audience. All right, so going back to verse, uh, verse 40, um, so he says, you also must be ready. So now we know the you, everyone, son of man, Jesus, what does he mean by being ready? Well, part of this is doing what he commanded uh, in his absence. And so we see this in verse 42, uh, where it talks about the faithful servant giving the household the portion of food at the proper time. But we also see this uh, as a centering our lives around him so much that we're ready for his unexpected arrival. And so he's coming at an hour that you do not expect, so be ready. So we, we center our lives around that. Uh, and so to show you what I mean, it, it actually helps to look at the text in verses 35 through 38, uh, which will be on the screen, or, or 37 rather. Actually, I had 38 as well, and I forgot to tell the AV team. <laughs> to extend it one more, which is fine. Uh, but you see there, stay dressed for action, keep your lamps burning. Those are both ready terms. So staying dressed for action in, in that context would have, been, uh, would have been like tucking your cloak in so you're ready to run, you're ready to move. Think of this as going to bed with your, your full outfit on, your shoes on, so that as soon as somebody knocks, you're ready to go. That's what, that's what it's implying here. Keeping your la lamps burning self-explanatory, self but in our context, we can think of, like, keep your car running. Detroit might be a little bit of a problem with that, but generally speaking, 
that's the readiness, is keeping your, your car running, keeping, keeping dressed and, and ready. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. And then, and then here's the, the key, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. So they can open at once as soon as the master comes and knocks. So think of all of this, the distractions that we have in our life and all the times that we put off the things that we should be doing. And someone comes in and interrupts what we're doing. And so how ready are we for their arrival? And then what's, what's more is how ready are we in the context of an employer that comes in, back in unexpectedly or a spouse that comes in unexpectedly or a parent and a child, a parent comes in unexpectedly. That's that type of readiness mindset that we're ready. It doesn't matter if the master comes while we're doing whatever we're doing because we're, we're still honoring the master and we're ready for his arrival. Uh, so a, a, an illustration here, uh, for those of you who have dogs, who has dogs here? All right. What do the dogs do when, when you come home? Come to the door, they bark, prick their ears up, come to the gate. I don't have a dog. I uh, witnessed this a, a few weeks ago with Miss Julia driving her home, and, and I noticed it. Uh, especially in the context of this passage, is that every time I drove her home, her dogs came to the gate and ears perked up and they were, they were ready. They were at the ready. And so I asked her facetiously, she asked to sit the dogs down for a quick talk to let them know, hey, I'm, I'm leaving, going to be back in two hours, so do whatever you want, but in two hours be ready for my return. Of course, she doesn't do that. Nobody does that. The dogs are already, already ready for her to come back whenever she, she arrives. Um, another illustration with, with my son, Nathaniel, he's the little one back there, one and a half years old. And so I work upstairs. And, uh, and so whenever I come down the stairs, and we, it actually goes to the basement, comes back up, whenever he hears my steps, he runs to the baby gate and starts screaming. And he'll start yelling the phrase, Nana, which is his name for me for some reason. But, but just waving his arms up and, and, and grabbing the, the baby gate and lifting his arms up. Doesn't matter when I come. I never, I never announce it. I don't, I don't say when I'm going to come. Sometimes I don't even know. I just want to break. And he's, he's ready. That's that sort of readiness. And actually, for, for thinking about coming to, to God the Father like a child, that's probably a good illustration, is that we, we come to him in that spirit of readiness uh, like Nathaniel does for me and like, like other little children uh, do for their parents. All right. So, so now that we've, we've got the context of that verse, we can, we can better understand the, the entire parable. Uh, so we have the master, Jesus. He's left. He's entrusting the servants, us, with responsibilities, expecting them to center their lives around his coming. As servants, we then have the option to be faithful or unfaithful to what our master requires. And Jesus tells us the consequence of that choice. And so now I'll get into the faithful and, and wise manager. And so a piece of that will be on the screen. But if you're following along in your Bibles, it's verses 36 through 38 and 42 through 44. And so you see that, if you can flip to the next slide. Yep, and, and so you see that um, for this particular manager, the servant is ready for his master's return even if late. In, in the night, and this was from verses 36 to 38. If the, if the master comes in the second or the third watch, I won't go into the details of what that means. It's just very, very late to the point of being unexpected. Think of like midnight, 2 a.m., 4 a.m. You're no longer expecting uh, that person to come back, so that's a very late uh, type of watch. And unexpected, like a thief in the night. You don't expect when a thief comes up. That was Jesus' point with using that illustration. Uh, if you did, you would, you would have stayed at, at your home and not let your house be broken into. Uh, so, so the servant is ready, dressed for action, has lamps burning, opens the door at once for his, when his master knocks. And then here, here in this verse you see, uh, he fulfilled the master's commands in his absence, giving the household their portion of food at the proper time. So he's taking care of his master's duties. And, and responsibilities and obligations while he's, he's away. Um, so what's, what's amazing here about this passage is that the servant is honored with service 
from his master's return, and he's given more responsibilities set over all his master's possessions. So this, this tells us how extraordinarily generous and humble Jesus is as our master. And so think of the context of, uh, in, in this passage it says, um, he will set him over his, his household. Um, Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. And so he's faithful in the little bit uh, that, that he's been given, merely faithful, merely doing what his master requ- required. And, and yet, when his master returns, he gives him rulership over all his possessions. And so when we think about the depth of the riches of the generosity of Jesus, who in our little meager ways, as we're faithful, he promises us rulership over all, that is extraordinary for mere faithfulness. And then, and then he goes further because it's not just that he sets us over, over everything, but then he swaps places and he serves us. This, the, the, the master says then once he returns, he tells the servant then to recline at table and, he gets, and the master gets ready and serves the servant, which uh, is extraordinarily humble for, for a master to do. And then, and then for Jesus, we see this we probably bring to mind Jesus washing the feet of the disciples, that he came not to be served, even though we see his, his glory in that passage that I went over in Daniel and his dominion, but he came not to be served, he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, we also see this, this act of service foreshadowing the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we see that in Revelation 19, if, if you want to check that out. But there's this, this glorious uh, marriage supper of the Lamb that we can anticipate uh, attending if, if our names are written in the book of life. So that, that is extraordinary. So we see the extraordinary richness of Jesus, the extraordinary humility for the faithful service of his servants upon his return. Okay, now let's get into the unfaithful servant. And this is in verses 45 through 46. So it says, but if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. So this unfaithful servant takes advantage of the master's delay. And I put the, the delay in quotation marks because the servant has convinced himself that his master is delayed. So basically, he's moving to the point of unbelief that his master is coming back. So now he can be the master. Now he can do whatever he wants. He can live, live his life out uh, without the uh, inconvenience of having a master overseeing what he's doing. Uh, and you can see what he does with that. He gives in to abusing his own authority. And so it says he, he beats the male and female servants. So what I noticed in studying this passage is that in the Greek, the male and female servants, it could, not, I'm not a Greek scholar, so say this on your own, but it could uh, indicate youth of the servants. These are young male and young female servants. I think it's, it's fair to make the connection that this unfaithful servant had some authority over others, and yet he abused that authority. And so as Jesus gives us authority over others on earth, we have a greater obligation to be faithful, uh, not only to Jesus, but to those he's entrusted us over. Special responsibility for this falls on the elders of the church who have responsibility for the caretaking of the souls of the members of this church, but also the deacons who have, have responsibility of service within the church, other leaders of the church. I talked about, even in my introduction, as the evangelism influence leader, there's influence, there's there's authority over that, uh, as well as to those of us who are parents. God has entrusted us with these little ones. Uh, if, if anyone leads the little one astray, it's better if they tie a millstone around their neck and throw themselves in the ocean. Paraphrasing a bit, but the, Jesus spoke with gravity for an abuse of the power of those that he's entrusted. Um, and then further for this servant, he devotes himself to a pleasure-seeking and self-serving life. It says he eats and drinks and gets drunk. Uh, and so again, this is just the servant just 
declaring himself the master, doing whatever he wants, obviously ignoring the responsibilities of giving the portion. You see the swap there. He, uh, instead of giving the portion to the, the members of the household at the proper time, he's taking the portion, he's eating them himself and, and drinking and getting drunk and just, uh, just living for himself. So the end of the servant is devastating as the master unleashes the full wrath on the servant, cutting him to pieces and casting him to hell with the unfaithful. And so the reason why I say cast him to hell with the unfaithful is one, we know that the, um, anything not done out of faith is sin. We know that faith is essential in, in salvation, but it also in parallel passages, it goes in even deeper and talks about uh, that this servant will be sent out uh, to a place of darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there's a deep anguish uh, that can be expected. And so Jesus uses strong language here to show how fearful a thing it is to fall into the hands of God. Jesus had said elsewhere, do not fear him who kills the body, but is unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And I think that's what's in view here. All right, so we get the faithful servant, and then we have the unfaithful servant, and we see the the results, the consequences of both. Now let's get into the... um, the other two verses, verses 47 through 48. And that will be up on the, the screen as well. So as I was studying this passage, uh, it started to become more, more clear and, and I became increasingly convinced that these seem to be clarifications of the punishment based on the knowledge of the master's will uh, with the principle applied to 48. So I was... I, I, I was considering whether or not these were different servants entirely, but it seems in the context of the passage, and notably that, th- that this clarification is absent in some of the par- parallel passages in Mark and Luke, um, that I ended up uh, reaching that conclusion. Um, and so what the, the principle here that's applied is in verse 48, where it says, everyone to whom much was given of much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. And so I'll go into, I think, a, a, another reason, too, why I think that these are qualifications uh, that, that Jesus is, is sharing. Um, but really, the take-home for us is that we should know that, that God is both just and fair in his punishment. The more you receive, the more you will be responsible, and the more you'll be held accountable for the things you re- you've received. Uh, so let's get into verse 47, the servant who knew his master's will and neglected it. This servant receives a severe beating. Uh, and so as I was studying what that, that beating might be, the context there, uh, so there was something called, called uh, lashings at that time that you would receive as punishment. Uh, and so there was a, a 40 minus 1 lashings, and the, the equation to get to that point was basically the point that they could take you uh, uh, in penalty so that you wouldn't die. So they could beat you so much that you'd still have a shred of life still in you and, uh, and then you could still live. So they wouldn't, it wouldn't be a, uh, an execution, but it would be a very severe beating. Well, th- this passage could even indicate um, a stacking of crimes. And so we understand that in our legal context of uh, criminals that receive uh, uh, punishments that stack on each other. Um, a person that comes to mind, for example, is Larry Nadler. If you remember him, he was a, a physician that abused g- gymnasts for a long period of time. His victims reached um, dozens, if not even even over 100. I can't remember exactly. But in any case, they stacked his punishment. So he has something like 1,000 years in, in prison. I don't remember the exact number, but it was something that's well beyond how long he's going to live. So. So this is a, a type of stacking of punishment. So that's another way to look at this. Uh, because this, this person had, had the knowledge, had uh, knew his master's will, and still uh, did not do it. All right, and so this should remind us of Hebrews 10. Uh, it says in Hebrews 10, 26 through 31, <coughs> For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will con- consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think 
will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That passage, I think, is why we take church discipline in this church seriously is because we are actually doing this out of a heart of love to warn our brothers and sisters who are falling away and sinning deliberately, even after they've received this knowledge of the truth, the knowledge of the grace, the knowledge of the faithfulness of our Savior, and yet still just trampling on his sacrifice. That's why we take it seriously. And I think in the context of this passage, if you think of Jesus' audience at that time, he's speaking to the Jews that had the full revelation. And so they're entrusted with this revelation, and yet he's still doing miracles. He's preaching about the coming kingdom. And, and so I, I think this is an exhortation, a severe warning for them not to ignore his message and to respond. So now let's get into verse 48, which is the one who didn't know his master's will and, and neglected it. That servant receives a light beating. And so who are these people? Again, remember Jesus' audience is the Jews. And so uh, these are the people to whom the, the, the God's revelation was entrusted. God's plan for redemption, though, has not yet gone out to the Gentiles at this point. Gentiles are the non-Jews. So it hasn't extended beyond yet. And this qualification tells us that the ignorance of God's revelation will not save them. So let me repeat that. The ignorance of God's revelation will not save them. Remember, they still receive a beating. It's all right. We, lo we love children here. We have a ton of children. And so it, it, they are a blessing. Uh, so let me, let me repeat that. The ignorance of God's revelation will not save them. Remember, they will still receive a beating. But they won't be held accountable for the revelation that they didn't know, that they weren't aware of. So today in our context, we can think of this as unreached people. And so uh, we are not such people in this church. Uh, but instead, this realization should motivate us for missions. Should, it should compel us. The unreached and the ignorant are not grouped with the faithful. It's important to keep that in mind to remember that. They are still held accountable for what they do, even if unaware of their master's will. As another pastor had said, every breath an unbeliever takes is in defiance of the God who gave them that breath. So out of love for our neighbor, we should then be compelled to tell them the good news of great joy that is for all the people, that there is a savior, there is redemption for their sins. They can turn away from their unfaithfulness and turn towards the God who promises a savior and, and redemption and grace and overwhelming mercy. They can turn. And so we should be compelled to go and to share that. Uh, it says in the scripture, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard? All right, so Jesus has given us a responsibility. The choice before us is faithfulness. He promises to return, but we do not know when. But we know it will happen unexpectedly for us all. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, Mere Christianity illustrates the time of his coming and the choice before us now in this way. I'm quoting now. When the author walks on the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade all right, but what is the good of saying you are on his side then when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something it never entered your head to conceive, comes crashing in, something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time it will be God without disguise, something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror to, into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There is no use saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we really have chosen whether we realized it before or not. 
Now, today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it. And so now, with, with that very, very serious and, and difficult passage, now let's look at the application. How can we walk through this? How can we as a church be that faithful and wise servant? How can we move towards greater and greater faithfulness? And, and I do want to put before you, church, if we committed ourselves to greater faithfulness, what would our church look like in 12 months? We cons- if we considered how we can grow in these different ways, and I'll go over some of the practical steps now. So the first one is the, the most essential because it's going to be the one that all the others flow from, and that is focusing on Jesus. Focus on Jesus. So a quick illustration to show how, how, uh, how, we, can, how we can relate this a bit is that you don't, need to know, you don't need to tell a groom or a bride on their wedding night to be faithful, right? You have to give them a list of do's and don'ts. Okay, this is what you do. You know, they're consumed with, with love for each other, looking, looking only, having eyes only for each other at that moment, uh, at that time. But we can grow cold in our marriages. We can also grow cold in, in our love for Christ, our, our first love. And so that's what we need to, to focus on the faithful servants, servant acts out of love for his master, which propels him to good works. Remember, he's anxious. He's waiting, waiting at the door for his master to come back. His whole life is poured out in readiness for his master. That's what we need to return to. And so one of the ways that we can, we can look to Jesus is we can remember his promises. So I, I want to share with you an, an ancient promise that Jesus kept. Uh, so this is found in, in Genesis, in the beginning of the Bible, first few chapters. After the first humans, Adam and Eve, were created, they disobeyed God through the temptation of Satan and ate the fruit God commanded them not to eat. So God placed them in the garden. He gave them all the, the glory of that garden to tend all the enjoyment of being in his presence, walking in his presence, and gave them one rule. Don't eat from the tree that I command you not to eat. And they disobeyed that rule. Their unfaithfulness necessitated a promise from God to undo the damage done by unleashing sin into the world. It had a, a corros- corrosive effect and infected every human being that lived after that point to be born with a sin nature and, and even corroded and corrupted the, even creation uh, beyond that. That's why we see so much brokenness in our world. But in Genesis 3, God promised that the offspring of the woman would crush the serpent's head. So even, even in that moment of, of deep shame, and it, right after committing the, the sin that, that echoed even to this day, God promised redemption to Adam and Eve that day. He said that the offspring of, this, of the woman would crush the serpent's heads. And then thousands of years later, nailed to a cross on a hill in front of mockers and scoffers, Jesus endured the full weight of, of God's wrath for the sins of God's unfaithful people. And this is something that nobody in this room can relate to. We cannot understand the, or even remotely fathom the depth of the agony or the severity or the, the uh, just the extremity of, of this because we are all under God's mercy and patience in this very moment. Every one of us is under God's mercy and patience in this very moment because he has not turned his full wrath on the sins that, that we deserve. And, and so for those of us, though, who have turned to Christ and trusted him, repenting of our sins, we will never experience that wrath. And so let, let, me, let me tell you a bit about, about God's wrath. Jesus Christ, the perfect man, fully human, fully God, who came to this earth to be, be the redemption for sin, the strongest will of any human being that ever lived, he pled with the Father in the garden to take the cup away from him, if it's possible. And then in full deference to the Father and, and to the plan and perfect obedience, he says, but not my will, your will be done. And so that's, if, if Jesus was fearful 
of the full weight of, of God's wrath, how much more so should we be the ones that deserve it? And so those, for those of us who have turned to Christ, we will not experience that. That should fill us with great joy. That's that message of good news, of great joy. Yes, amen, amen to that. So, so that's true for you, even if it just happened today. That is the depth of the grace, graciousness and mercy of our master. See, Jesus crushed the head of Satan that day because he defamed him from ever accusing God's people of sin. Every single wretched, despicable, unfaithful thing I have ever done or didn't do, Jesus steps in front of that accusation and says, already covered, that one's paid for every single time. If you want to defang a prosecutor, you take every charge off the table. He will no longer be able to charge you with anything. That's what Jesus did in crushing the head of the serpent. He has no, no longer any power in accusation over us. Alternatively, if instead you desire a different master than the, the gracious, humble master I'm, I'm laying before you, then I must warn you, that the punishment, the deserved punishment, hangs over your head, even now, at this moment, and it will happen in the hour that we least expect it. So I urge you, I invite you to come, to repent, to turn to Christ, turn to this master, and be faithful to him and him alone. All right, so that's, that's one of the promises that Jesus fulfilled. Uh, but not only does, does Jesus fulfill God's promises Faithfully, Jesus abounds in faithfulness. So I'll share with you a, a story. This is from Exodus uh, chapter 34. And, uh, and I'll just go quickly over here. But, but this, is, this is the uh, experience that, that Moses has where he asks for God to display to him his, his glory. And so it's important to note here that this is right after the Israelites had made for themselves golden calves and started to worship them. So they showed this, this very despicable act of unfaithfulness to God who had just brought them out of e Egypt and redeemed them from the house of slavery. They make these, these gods, these fake gods, and worship them. And, uh, and Moses goes up to the mountain to renew the covenant uh, of God with his people. And so he requests to see God's glory. And this is what God says in describing his glory. He says he's going to proclaim his name before him. And he says, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Praise be to God that the, the, the central component to his attributes that he proclaims for us is mercy, steadfast love, and faithfulness. Now our faithfulness, what's more is our faithfulness is embedded within Christ's faithfulness. He is the one that keeps us from stumbling. Now, uh, if you go to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, in Hebrews a lot, there's a lot in, in Hebrews that connects to this passage, I think. Uh, but it says, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to the confidence and our boasting and our hope. See, our, our faithfulness is embedded within Christ's faithfulness. So we have a faithful master that inspires and encourages and, and really fulfills our own faithfulness. So that is the way that we grow in faithfulness is we look to Christ. And so, like I said, these other, these other areas will flow out of that. And so how do we grow in that? Because like I said, we can grow cold. Well, one of the ways to grow in faithfulness is to read the Bible. It says in Psalm 119, verse 30, I've chosen the way of faithfulness. I've set your commands before me. And so we also see earlier in that psalm that the, the psalmist had stored up God's word in, in his heart, that he wouldn't sin against him. We see in Psalm 1, the, the, the godly man is the one who uh, meditates on God's word day and night. So, so think about that. What does it mean to meditate on God's word day and night? I think what it means is that we should be so uh, uh, renewed by God's word and so informed by God's word that every decision that we make goes through the lens of a biblical worldview, a bi biblical understanding, goes through the lens of scripture. Comes to mind Romans uh, 12 too, do not be conformed to the world, 
but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, was good and acceptable and perfect. In contrast, reading the Bible with reading anything else the world produces. News, does that give you peace? Books compelling you to do something or, or self-exalt you or your idols? All right, and so now uh, prayer is another one. God answers prayer. And so as we seek God's face more in prayer, we grow in faithfulness. It be, part of the reason is because God answers prayer, and we see him answering and responding in those ways, or he, he'll give us peace in moments that we need it, peace that surpasses all understanding. He gives us wisdom uh, to those who ask for it. Uh, we, see, we see God at work in our lives when we're seeking him in prayer, and we, we come to know him more and more, and we come to know Jesus more and more uh, when we do that. So that's another way that we can certainly uh, grow in faithfulness. And then the next point is not neglecting the gathering. Now, this is key. The weekly gathering, Wednesday night fellowship, DNA, other church-related uh, events, uh, they can become like a chore, or they can become rote. But Jesus didn't die for a chore, right? and he didn't die for a religious exercise. And I think we need to be reminded that the church is, is Jesus' bride. It's a living organism. He considers the church his body. So when we gather together, this is a holy, holy holy thing. And by holy, I mean set apart. There's nothing in the universe that's like it. The worship that we share together echoes for an eternity because it gives glory to our master. And it provides a faint reflection of Revelation 7, 9, of standing before the throne of God and worshiping without the obstruction of our, our sin and the weights that we carry and, and, and our blurred vision of who Christ really is. But we will, we will see everything clearly in that moment. And we come together as brothers and sisters in this room throughout the world. All the people that have been redeemed come together before the throne, and we are worshiping him forever and ever. I shared that with somebody uh, before a relative, and, and uh, you know, he said that sounds boring. For the people of God, we know that being in God's presence, there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. The world is boring. The world has has limited pleasure that it can offer. God promises pleasures forevermore. But of course, our message is a stench of death to those who are perishing, but a stench of life to those who, uh, who are in the book of life. So, another reason that we need the church, I need you guys to call me out on my foolishness. Just like you need me to call you out on your foolishness. An example here is uh, when we stop meeting as a church, uh, for, you know, to, to, to take some precautions for the coronavirus, and I started to enjoy it. Started to enjoy popping down the sermon, maybe doing some other stuff, multitasking, that sort of thing. And then I was convicted by Proverbs 18.1. It says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. I think that's a, a message we need to hear in our culture today, because we tend to isolate ourselves. We tend to seek our own judgment. We tend to want to do our own thing and then think that the other people are wrong and we don't submit ourselves to, uh, to the counsel of others. All of our sinful proclivities and weights need to be set aside for the sake of looking to Christ and awaiting his hopeful, the hopeful expectation of his return. In Hebrews 3.13, it says, But exhort one another, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And then in Hebrews 10, 23 through 25, let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And, and so as a, as a quick aside, uh, I, I visited a, a missionary organization called To Every Tribe a few years ago. I met a missionary there. And his, his story stuck with me. He said that, you know, I really wanted to go on missions for a long time. I would planned to, to go out to southern Mexico and uh, right up to the elders, and they said no. They said no. So I had to wait a few years. And then they said, yes, go. And, uh, and, and I went. And it, it stuck with me because I thought, how many of us would do that? 
how many of us would submit to the elders uh, when, when we bring up a question like that? Because there's all sorts of spiritual justifications, particularly for that, that we can use. Hey, the harvest is plentiful. Laborers are few. When the Lord calls, I need to go. I need to obey God, not man, that sort of thing. We can, we can conflate and confuse a lot of things, but we would be disobeying Scripture. Here's what I mean by that. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Remember that responsibility I talked to, or I talked about? They will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. All right, so we need, we need the church. And then uh, the, the final point here is really more of an exhortation to not be discouraged. Um, God promises fruit for our faithfulness. He promises fruit. He doesn't always promise that we'll see the fruit or that the fruit will be what we expect. And so some examples in scripture that, that I hope will provide some encouragement for you. Noah, he was building the ark for 100 years. How many people were saved on the ark? He was preaching in that time. He was exhorting his neighbors. Nobody else came on the ark except for his family. Um, Isaiah, we love to quote Isaiah. Whom shall I send? Send me, Lord, I'll go. And we don't read the rest of that passage. What, you, what, what God says to Isaiah after he says, I'll go, he says, great, go to a people who will ignore you and harden, make their hearts dull. And then it, it goes on to say, okay, well, how long am I going to do this? Until the land is barren. And even then, if a tenth remains, I will still, still filter that so that there will just be a stump left. What a, what a mission. <laughs> what, an, what an evangelistic endeavor. Uh, doesn't always look like what we're going to see. Jeremiah is another example here. And some of you are there. You're faithful in your ministry, in your lives, uh, and things are not looking good. You're like Joseph in prison who faithfully obeyed God yet found himself falsely accused. Or you're like Daniel who refused to, to uh, accept the decree that went out that he can't worship his God, instead must worship a fake God, and was thrown into the lion's den. And some of you are in that prison. Some of you are in that den in this moment. And my exhortation to you is to hold fast. Hold fast. Fast. Your master is coming. He has promised. He always keeps every one of his promises. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. You are called to hold fast to the end. Even in the midst of intense persecution, even in the midst of a lack of fruit, even in the midst of what looks like failure to the world, the world may not recognize the ripe fruit of faithfulness that will last for eternity but your master does because it honors him and he's promised to return. When General Sherman went through Atlanta toward the sea in the Civil War, I'm quoting here from uh, Dr. Rod Mattoon, when General Sherman went through Atlanta toward the sea in the Civil War, he left in the fort back in the Kinnishaw Mountains around 1,500 men to guard some one and a half million rations that he brought there. General Hood, however, attacked the fort with 6,000 troops. For a long time, the battle raged furiously. Half of the defenders were either killed or seriously wounded. The general in command was wounded seven times. When they were about to run up the white flag of surrender, Sherman was within 15 miles of the besieged camp. Through the signal corps on a nearby mountain, he sent this message, Hold the fort, for I am coming, W.T. Sherman. The message fired up the defenders of the fort, and they held out for three more bloody hours until their reinforcements arrived, keeping their fort out of the hands of the enemy. This story was the basis for the famous hymn, Hold the Fort, for I am coming. Jesus gives the same message to us. We are to hold fast till he comes. We are to be faithful until the Lord returns. If Christ returns in your lifetime, will he find you faithful in serving him? Will you be making your life count for the Lord Jesus Christ? Realize, beloved, that faithfulness is a big deal to the Lord. God does not ask how many talents one has. He asks for faithfulness. The world crowns success. God crowns faithfulness. That's from Mattoon. The one who expects faithfulness is the same one who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Remember the banquet of the faithful. 
where Jesus himself will dress for service and have his faithful servants recline at table. Revelation 19.9 says, And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Brothers and sisters, in 2022, let's be the faithful church God calls us to be. Jesus, the generous and humble master, is worth it. And with that, we'll, we'll pray. Father, we thank you that you are faithful, that you keep your promises, even, even when we don't, even when we are unfaithful, and yet you redeemed us from, from the, the depth of our sin and, and called us to a life of faithfulness. And, and what a generous and merciful master Jesus is. And we, we are ecstatic and filled with great joy to be under his lordship and and to have this church be under his lordship lord will you keep us faithful till the end will you will you help us to hold fast even when our grip is slipping lord may you may you keep us faithful as a church that we may pursue you more in 2022 and in our lives even today lord may we may we look to you as the the keeper of promises and, and fulfill us with, with great energy to, to serve those that you have put in, in our way uh, and to love others and, and love you with a deep and abiding love that, that even that, Lord, comes from you. We're grateful and we love you. Thank you for this time that we're able to worship you. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brother John, for your word on faithfulness. If you guys could all rise, uh, we will sing some songs of praise in response uh, to this word.